Rude Awakenings, Chapter 3 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Our two pilgrims have opted to walk from the Indian border to Lumbini, inside Nepal, the Buddhist holy site where the Buddha was born. This is where they plan to start their pilgrimage proper, walking for six months round the rest of the holy sites in northern India. It is 28 kilometres to Lumbini, too far to complete the same day. Chapter 3 Leaving Home Achan Suchito The first glowing afternoon on the road to Lumbini, moving across the flat farmland, was rich with the joy of leaving it all behind. The uniformity of the plain, paddy fields, a few trees, the repeated elements of bullock carts sauntering along, the occasional cyclist meandering by, blended perfectly with the simple repetition of letting one step flow after another. Nothing ahead any different from what was behind. No end and no beginning. Just the faring on and the rhythm of walking out in the open at last. Above the landscape spread around us, tiny dwellings with their cooking smells, pinpoints of light and family murmurings. The moon soared, lifting my heart with it. This was what I went forth for. I could have walked all night. However, in a spirit of moderation, we stopped to rest in some drab patch of dried mud with a stunted tree as compensation. It was harder than walking. The body in its waterproof bag complained about the hard ground. Now the hips, now the shoulders, jogged me awake to look enviously at the stars. I slept light and got up before dawn. Early morning is a time I like to ease into slowly. On the road, out in the open, one can sit wrapped in the last vestiges of night and get centred. This is an asset when what comes on my first morning in Nepal is a sign bent on moving the mind. A ragged man came shuffling on in the half-light, paused about a dozen paces in front of me, turned and squatted, pulled up his dhoti, and proceeded to empty his bowels, a dawn attack on the bastions of propriety, this area of life is the one above all that the West cannot accept into consciousness, and which Mother India therefore thrusts before our cringing gaze. Despite our openness about sexual matters, and our yielding recognition of death, the daily business of the body is still socially unacceptable. In India, back at Mother's bosom, we learn toilet training anew. Every morning in the country, people make their way out into the treeless fields with their little cans of water 
to defecate and then wash the anus with water and the left hand. Food goes in by means of the right hand and out to the ministrations of the left. The symmetry in that. One can grow to like the cool matter-of-factness of something that is, actually, a matter-of-fact. Having finished, he stood up, turned, and peered toward where I was in the half-light, shuffled forward, and, finally recognising what I was, he grunted, turned, and went on his way. Human contact. Early morning. Later that morning, we came to the temples at Lumbini. There were two living Buddhist shrines. Round the bend in the road and across the river Till, the eye of a Tibetan gompa met ours in welcome. Behind it stood the Nepalese Vihara, with its resident bhikkhu, Venerable Vimalananda Mahatera. It was getting to the crucial hour of eleven o'clock by the time we strode in, but the Mahatera darted out from the temple garden and promptly invited us to have the meal with him. Two other Theravadan bhikkhus were there, but there was no time or need for introductions as we were briskly tucked in around the humble table next to the kitchen. The aged cook with mongoloid features and a younger Nepali with characteristic Indian features bustled round, grinning and loading rice, pulses, chilies, and vegetables on our plates. Venerable Vimalananda hopped between his own meal and our plates to ascertain that all was well. Nothing much was said. The fellow bhikkhus knew the niceties of identity could be sorted out later. After the meal and formal pleasantries, Bunty towed us swiftly around the temple and its grounds. Obviously he'd been here many years. The birth of the Buddha in this grove, or in fact any aspect of the Buddha's life and teachings, did not merit a mention. He must have said it all so many times. And Lumbani had become a domestic reality, a temple to maintain, funds to be raised, helpers and assistants to be monitored, bureaucratic officialdom to be wrangled with. I sympathised. It takes a lot of insight to make the place you stay in a source of wonder and inspiration. Bunty's erratic conversation, in pretty good English, roved around the shortage of young supportive bhikkhus. The handful in Nepal liked to stay in Kathmandu, where the living was easier. His wish to build a temple in his hometown of Tanzen. And the shortcomings of the Lumbini Development Project. This project had been started in 1967, after Uthant, Secretary General of the UN, and being Burmese, a Buddhist, visited the site. Funds had been solicited from Buddhist countries, a metal road built from Bairawa, and some other relatively minor constructions completed. A huge board by the gate indicated where new monasteries would be established, where a conference centre would stand, and the site of the new pilgrims' accommodation which would house the thousands of devotees. Bunty's temple, which had been here since 1956, and which occupied a small but central position, would, according to the plan, be torn down. Bunty seemed pretty dismissive of the whole thing. Planning! That's all they do is planning! For twenty, thirty years, nothing gets done. 
Then he would dart off to pick up some litter and enter a brief dialogue in Nepali with one of the locals. We didn't have a lot of time together. He had to go and talk to some visitors. But he remembered Sister Rojana. Um, she got sick in Bodhagaya Bhante. They, um, they put her on a train to Delhi, but she died there. I think her heart gave out. Oh. There was a pause before he had to go. He rattled out a few instructions to the young man who had helped serve the meal and made gestures that we should settle in. Sister Rojana was one of the nuns from Amravati. She was the eldest, aged 59, when she decided to accompany a party of pilgrims to the Buddhist holy places three years previous to our journey. The pilgrims, including two of our bhikkhus, travelled between the holy places by means of a hired bus, spending a day or two at each site. Sister Rojana was quite a character. She'd been a herbalist and homeopath, and in general was someone to whom benevolent action came easier than contemplation. Her energetic output could be difficult for everyone to live with, including herself. In the year prior to the pilgrimage, she had had some very bad asthmatic attacks that made her feel death was on the way. Sister Rojana was also concerned about her twin sister, an amateur astrologer, she had calculated that her sister's astrological outlook was entering a critical stage. It was, of course, the same as her own. Therefore, she undertook the pilgrimage to pay homage to the Buddha and to share the goodness of her aspiration with her sister, who remained in England. Recollecting her last words before she left, the other nuns understood that she was giving final instructions should she not come back. After all, it's terribly auspicious to die on a pilgrimage. And sure enough, she burned out within a month, got too excited, wouldn't rest, got a fever, insisted on going to Bodhagaya, and went unconscious there. Two of the other pilgrims took her on a train to Delhi, where her heart gave out. She was cremated there, and the bones still in chunks, because the furnace wasn't very powerful, came back to England. So, Rojana's sister nuns had the contemplative duty to break the bones up and grind them so that they could be scattered as ashes, according to her wishes. A few fragments were kept as relics, and they were in the bag of sacred objects that I had around my neck. One of the things I was doing on this pilgrimage was bringing the whole family along. A lot of what I was wearing and the handy things that I'd been given were to me reminders of the benevolence within which I live. The small items some of the monastics had given me to take around the holy places were to offer on their behalf. I felt like I was bringing it all back home, back to the domain of the Buddha undertaking the pilgrimage on behalf of others, as well as having the devotional theme of making offerings to the shrines, enriched the aspiration behind the pilgrimage and elevated its perspectives. I held my dead father in my heart, as well as my aged mother, 
My Sangha family were there too. The lodging didn't come up to the artist's rendering of the future pilgrimage accommodation at Lumbini. Accommodation was a two-storey block of rooms, about a dozen in all, wooden floored, with scraps of mosquito screens on glassless windows, a couple of wooden plank beds, and sporadic electricity. Mosquitoes would have to have been blind and geriatric not to be able to find their way through the gaps in the screen. The room was small and crude, but Bunty's assistant was keen and responsive. His favourite phrase, no problem. Finding some bedding, he flicked a brush over the floor and even gave us a lock for when we left the room. I think I was trying too hard to be inspired. Nick had a much lighter time of it in Lumbini. When the afternoon cooled a little, we wandered around the ruins behind the temple. Queen Mahamaya's temple, from which strings of Tibetan prayer flags radiated out to the trees in the immediate vicinity. The tank, that is a man-made rectangular pond for bathing. The Ashokan pillar, with the inscription from 250 BCE. And some votive stupas from later periods. That was about it. We walked around it in ten minutes, and then did it again more carefully, to rake out whatever inspirational gems we could. Queen Mahamaya's temple was a small Hindu temple, presided over by a Brahmin priest wearing a dhoti and ochre and white body paint. The shrine inside the temple centres on a stone tablet from the Gupta period, say 4th century CE, that depicted Mahamaya, the Buddha's mother, standing and holding onto a branch of a tree while her baby emerges from her side and devout heavenly beings look on. The innards of the temple are lit by oil lamps and smell greasy. Plenty of soot everywhere, daubings of red paint, an emphasis on giving money and getting good luck. On the wide walkway at the front of the temple, a Tibetan monk performed a puja for some Tibetan visitors. The little flames of butter lamps trembled with the slightest breeze. I envied them their devotion. The old ruins, the Gompa and the Vihara, lay in the centre of a grove that ran north-south for a kilometre or more. Right by the ruins were some little hillocks, grassed over spoilage heaps from 20th century excavations. To the south there was a new monument to world peace, just outside the Lumbani Development Project Complex. Nothing much was happening there, except a rather languid strike. Inside the buildings it was dusty. A young assistant showed us the impressive plans and drawings. The paper was curling and developing brown patches. The way north was more uplifting. Beyond the central area I could see a flame flickering at the head of a long, wide, tree-lined avenue. It was the flame of eternal peace, kept continually alight in its stone dish. It seemed more quiet and reflective up there, away from the tour party zone. The avenue of trees lined a canal that proceeded north to the end of the site, passing by the recently completed shell 
of the control centre. The project, like many developments in poor countries, must have sprung up with enthusiasm but wilted as funds waned and leadership got dissipated. Our stay in Lumbini spread over six days. I spent most of my time meditating and looking for a sense of wonder. The great Buddhist emperor Ashoka made a pilgrimage here and left an inscription, a very matter-of-fact one compared to the edicts that occupy his other pillars. It just says that he visited the place and, because the Lord was born here, the village of Lumbini is exempted from tax and is required to pay only one-eighth of the produce. Good news for somebody twenty-two centuries ago, but such an announcement hardly sends a shiver of religious awe through the marrow. The unadorned glossy pillar was impressive, I assure myself. They mined the stone from the Varanasi region and hauled it all the way up here in a block. It must stand about seven metres high. Fashen hadn't been able to get here. The jungle was too overgrown in 400 CE. By the time of the next famous pilgrim, Xuanzang, Lumbini was a legend. The thick forest of the Terai had swallowed the roads. Local Buddhist activity continued into the 10th century. Then Lumbini more or less disappeared. A few local people worshipped the shrine to Mahamaya, who had gradually mutated into Mahadevi, a minor Hindu deity. But the traces of the Enlightened One disappeared. A Dr. Führer dragged Lumbini out of oblivion in 1895, when he dug around a funny stump of stone and found it to be the top of an Ashokan column. Impressive folk, archaeologists. But you can only stand trying to be impressed for so long with the tourists drifting by with their Nikons and shoulder bags. Even more jarring were the parties of Indians just out for the day to picnic in the grounds. The confused world washes through any place you stay. Maybe the Buddha got it right. The story says that on being born he took seven strides here. Having done that, he never came back. Nick Scott According to the old map we were using, the region around Lumbini was completely covered in sow forests in the 1940s. That forest had been felled and the land cultivated by people who migrated north from India, forced by overcrowding to work the poor soils of this region. Venerable Vimalananda's photos from 20 years previously showed the holy site set in a very barren landscape. But that had also changed this time due to the Nepalese government's grandiose scheme to create a tourist and pilgrimage site around the archaeological remains. Nepal didn't want to be left out of the benefits India was getting from all the visitors to the rest of the Buddhist holy places. Scenic canals had been dug and flooded encircling the site, trees planted for shade along the proposed walkways, and ten square kilometres set aside for tree planting to recreate a semblance of the forest that was once there. Although the plan for all manner of buildings seemed overambitious, 
for one of the poorest states in the world, only a couple had been started after 15 years, the earthworks and planting had created a wildlife haven. In addition to the wildlife habitat the project intended to create, there were now large areas of shallow open water caused by starting the earthworks for all those buildings and then running out of money. I spent a lot of my time at Lumbini roaming through this wonderful wildlife experience. The shallow pools lifted with wading and water birds. Most were species I was familiar with from the coastal wetlands I managed in England. But there were also a pair of elegant Saras cranes strutting about with crimson heads atop their tall grey bodies. The most exciting birds were the harriers. I never tired of watching them. Flapping slowly, they would fly low, looking to catch some small bird or animal unawares. Three different species, hen, marsh and pallid harrier. One bird would come by, slowly quartering the pools and surrounding vegetation, and a few minutes later, another would appear and start to do the same thing. In England, I would have been excited by seeing just one species just once. Here, they put on a nearly continuous show. Then there was the great spot by one of the canals where I watched a palace's fish eagle. That got me really excited. It sat in a tree opposite watching the water as I watched it through my binoculars. A big majestic bird with a hooked beak and intense beady eyes. Venerable Vimalananda was a kind old monk. After we were shown our rooms, we met him in the temple. It was a big, simple hall, dark and musty, with old photos on the walls of things that had been and gone. His teacher and other old monks in faded black and white, aerial shots of Lumbini before the development project, important people had visited, and pictures of old Nepal. He sat on a straight-backed chair beside the shrine, which he must have used for years to receive visitors. He wanted us to draw up two other chairs, but first my companion had to pay his respects. When Buddhist monks meet, whoever is junior bows to the more senior. Ajahn Shichito was trained in the Thai forest tradition in which surrendering to the rules and the form is central to the practice. So we had to pay our respects properly. Venerable Vimalananda made an attempt to stop us, it wasn't necessary as far as he was concerned and most other visiting monks would have made do with a simple light bow with their hands held together in Anjali. We, however, got down on the concrete floor kneeling, hands in Anjali, and first Ajahn Suchito and then myself bowed three times, heads coming down to the ground. Then, and only because the Venerable insisted, did we get up, Ajahn Suchito still keeping his hands in Anjali each time he spoke. Despite the Venerable's tutting and attempts to stop us, he also seemed charmed by the gestures of respect. It felt good to me too, as I followed the monastic example. This lovely old monk had spent a selfless life serving his religion, maintaining this temple and the rest house for pilgrims, while collecting donations for two projects in the hometown of Tanzin up in the Nepalese mountains. It was good to honour that. I could not help thinking, though, that it would be nice if he could now put it all down. He was getting old, and I wished he could now experience some of the peace that the monastic life was really set up for. 
When the half-moon came round, we sat up until midnight. The waning moon was absent from the sky as we started, so I could see by new stars that we were in a land to the south of home. Thereafter, though, I was hardly conscious. I took a walk to try and wake up, and was startled by a cow in the dark. It seemed to be charging me, and I had to jump sideways. But then I realised that it too was startled, and was just trying to get out of my way. I remember little else beside being slumped against a tree, trying to look like I wasn't sleeping. As for the head shaving, I thought about it, but still couldn't bring myself to do it. I looked at the razor Ajahn Suchito gave me, then decided I'd best leave it till Kushinigar. Crossing back across the border, my passport photo, with hair and beard, would look so unlike me. If nothing else, I was realising how powerful an act shaving the heads was. The hair has so much of our identity in it, and in my case there was the beer too, which I'd find even harder to part with. I did spend time in the holy site itself, but only in the early mornings and evenings, when the visitors had receded. Then, after our evening and morning pujas, the site was pleasantly peaceful. The small Tibetan prayer flags, once so colourful, but now partially washed out, were strung like bunting between the Bodhi trees and the temple. They swayed gently above the tank, with both them and the night sky reflected in the still water. After our chanting, I'd sit under a tree and just let the ease of the place wash over me. In the mornings, watching light come slowly into the sky and in the evenings, watching it fade, both from the sky and my mind, until I retire to bed, leaving Ajahn Suchito to sit on. Ajahn Suchito Rather than trying to evoke something from the distant past, I found it better to sit at night under the great tree by the tank and watch the flow of stuff arising and ceasing in the mind. It's a paradox. The apparently motionless meditator actually experiences total flux. Thoughts unwind and subtler moods intertwine with physical sensations and reactions to those sensations, often in a confusing and hypnotic flow. And sometimes the meditation can click into place and the mind seem bright, strongly defined, yet amorphous, responsive, yet still. So, like a gambler at a casino, you hope for the lucky break. We would make our way out to Maya's tank each dawn and evening, set my Buddha image up on the brickwork by the giant tree that overlooked the tank, offer incense, chant, and sit for an hour or so. At least I would sit there. Nick wandered off. My wanderings were more internal. I started off thinking of the Buddha's mother. She was probably married off when she was young for dynastic reasons, then became pregnant and gave birth in a forest. The legends weave poetic fantasies around it, but it must have been tough. At any rate, she died a week later. Then my thoughts wandered to my own mother, who was quite frail and poorly, 
when I left Britain? Did she know what she was letting herself in for when she had me? It was still difficult for her to acknowledge that I was a Buddhist monk. A bit like one of the family going nuts or becoming a junkie. And what good could what I was doing with my life do for her? Things weren't clicking. Meanwhile, modern Nepal was too involved with getting on its feet to be supporting inner tranquility. Money needs to be made, and that means servicing tour parties. Business was hardly booming in the snack bar by the lodging where the afternoon's heat confined me, but the radios certainly were. I tried a couple of times to get whoever was lodging in the room beneath us to turn the racket down so that I could sit peacefully in my room in the hot afternoon, in a mutterings about this being a holy place, and why don't people meditate, and serious pilgrims like me got me pacing up and down the room. And I stopped and sat down with my squalling and took it into my heart. When you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, you must not find fault with anyone. If you find fault, it is because you have not made peace with the world. If you have not made peace with the world, it is because you have not made peace in your heart. Master Hua, a Chinese Buddhist master who was visiting Amrawati a month before the pilgrimage began, had come out with that comment when addressing the assembled Sangha. It appeared as a general exhortation directed to nobody in particular, but it stuck in my mind like an arrow in a target. And now the recognition shivered in my mind. And as the radio jangled and blared and the wave of irritation collapsed, I remembered Bernie. Twenty years ago, Bernie, in the room next to mine at Warwick University, was devotedly applying himself to his study of economics, while I was heavily committed to loud music, pounding on the wall. Did I let up? No way. Pleas and threats would bring about a momentary respite, but not for long. I loved music. I knew that it was bothering him, but so what? Now was the time to listen and ask for forgiveness. To hold Bernie in my mind and empathise with him for a while was a lot more useful than getting irritated that not everybody around was meeting my special requirements. I interfered with Bernie's dharma. Now on pilgrimage it was proper to make my dharma one of non-contention. That fitted. So there was a birth of sorts in Lumbini. Not the inspirational mode that legends are made of, but something earthier. It struck me that wherever we went on the pilgrimage, the life of this journey was not going to be in the ruins and the temples. It was going to be conceived and nurtured wherever my mind flailed or fumed. However, in the manifest world, there was the matter of going places to be carried out. So, after three nights at the birthplace, we set off. We left at dawn, walked north along the canal, and came to the dirt road going west. About 25 kilometres along that road was Tilorakot, 
which the Nepalese hold to be the ruins of Kapalavatu, renowned as the city where Queen Mahamaya's son grew to manhood. I wanted to dedicate this time to my father, reciting a mantra and recollecting this bittersweet family business as I walked. But just as the recollections focus so I could open the old buried feelings, something will pull me out over and over. A bus careening around the potholes and showering us with dust as we stepped back. Then a jolting bullock cart with the driver clucking and whooping at his beasts. Sometimes it was Nick drawing my attention to an aspect of the landscape. Having had a lovely time at Lumbini watching the birds, he couldn't help but explode with glee at some bird perching on a telephone line. Look, Bunty, a red-vented bulbul! Uh-huh. I had a sinking realisation what this trip was going to be all about. Leave it all behind. All the positions, the expectations and the choices. These six months would be a crash course in keeping the focus very open. We stopped in the shade of a tree. A ploughman came over and squatted beside us. I started some tentative Hindi phrases. He shared a handful of roasted grains with us. They were sharing and smiling and parting. Around ten o'clock we came to a roadside village. I arranged my arms bowl under my robe, put all thought of food out of my mind, and wandered through the winding network of backyards and paths with chickens and great slow-moving buffaloes and half-naked children. A little throng clustered questioningly behind us as we made our way slowly through the earth and dwellings and eventually came into a clearing with a small shrine. The throng produced one or two better-dressed men and my feeble Hindi sparked off a sputtering conversation. The man in the clean white dhoti asked us about food and beckoned us across the clearing to his house, a large, properly built dwelling. Two charpoys, string beds, were brought out for us to sit on. Hidden womenfolk were told to produce a meal. After the meal I glimpsed one of them peering shyly through a crack in the window shutter at us. She instinctively pulled the hood of her sari across her face and disappeared. This male-female business is such a strange act. You're either running after, hanging on or pushing away. There just doesn't seem to be a peaceful abiding place. There was one more woman to come on this journey around the Buddha's home ground. Toli Horwa, three kilometres before Tilorakot, was where Bunty had advised us to seek out the Bajracharya family as one of the few Buddhist families in this predominantly Hindu area. Mr. Bajracharya was an ardent supporter who would be delighted to receive us, we were told. But it was dark by the time we arrived at the town, and with no address it looked unlikely that we would locate this philanthropic gent. As it turned out, it would have been more difficult to avoid him. A throng accumulated around us, following us eagerly through a few winding streets before a youth who spoke some English, almost incessantly, insisted that we follow him. We didn't even get a chance to explain about Patracharya. 
And so our little entourage proceeded to a fine house with a garden and an illuminated Buddhist shrine next to it, the Bhadracharya home. The door was open and a Bhadracharya male easily ushered us in as if we were expected. The visitor's book was produced and we signed in. We were the latest in an intermittent procession of Western pilgrims over at least 15 years. Theirs was a wealthy home. Residents and neighbours in the front room were watching the news in Hindi and English on the TV. Another lounge that we were invited into had a couch and armchairs. It reminded me that after a day on the hot and dusty road, I felt and smelt like a buffalo. Then along came Mataji, obviously Bhadracharya's mother, nearly as wide as she was tall, vigorous in manner and thick-armed, shiny grey hair pulled back to a knot. Nothing bashful about this stage of the female life. We could hear her bellowing out the orders to servants in the unapproachable recesses of the kitchen. We were allowed to abstain from the evening meal, but the matter of our receiving breakfast and tomorrow's midday meal was underlined, even before the duties of bathing and resting. Household dharma was no trivial matter. Conversation was minimal. The young male Bhadracharya, Bhadracharya the Great was absent, did not have much English, and my Hindi was worn out by this hour. But firm application of dharma by Mataji rendered a lot of conversation obsolete. Nick Scott Up until that walk to Kapilavatu, I hadn't resolved what I was going to do about food on the pilgrimage. Ajahn Suchito wanted to live on alms food, as bhikkhus always had in India. That was all very well for a penniless bhikkhu, but I had money and a job to return to in England. How could I accept food from poor Indians who didn't earn my weekly paycheck in a year? or for the poorest peasants, in a lifetime. I'd done what I could to not feel like a rich tourist, deliberately bringing enough money to allow us to complete our journey, but not to live in luxury. The rest of my savings, about the same amount again, I'd given away. But I could still afford to buy food. I'd imagined in England that Ajo Suchito would go on arms round, while I bought food to supplement it. Once we started walking, however, it became obvious that this wouldn't work. Away from the towns, there was little or no cooked food for sale, just simple tea shops. So I had put my reservations aside, and when we stopped at ten at that first village, go with him on the arms round. I was so nervous. As I got my plastic bowl out and pulled on my white wrap, why? Fear of the unknown? Of looking silly? of being rejected, whatever. I was really, really agitated as I followed Ajahn Suchito, walking slowly into the village. As we walked through the village, people stared, but no one responded, and I slowly calmed down. When it eventually became obvious that no one was going to put anything in our bowls, I felt relieved, even though this meant we might not eat that day. Then, 
as we sat in the square surrounded by a small gathering of inquisitive faces, I began to open up and enjoy being there. The man who eventually asked if we'd eaten turned out to be the village headman, and we were taken to sit outside his house. That first meal, the simple beauty of the offering, and the joy they all got from having us there, dissolved all my reservations. To say nothing of the food, which was simple yet wholesome and delicious. Rice, chapatis, dal, vegetables, sweetmeats, and lots of curd. During our meal, villagers were carrying in the last of the rice crop, women and the young and old, with bundles of cut paddy on their heads, while oxen were being used to thrash out the rice. Walking round in a circle, tied to a central pole and driven by the occasional whack of a stick from a boy, they tramped piles of paddy. Then, with the end of the midday break, men started leaving with oxen to continue ploughing the fields. On the road, we saw them at work, making their way slowly up and down the small fields behind their oxen, some just guiding the plough, others standing on it to make it dig deeper. We asked for rope beds to be put in the shade after the meal and made attempts at communication. Our host sat on a chair while other villagers stood or sat around watching these amazing apparitions that had come in off the road. We showed them photographs, Ajahn Suchito's monastery, the community of nuns and monks, my mum and dad and their cottage in Northumberland, and we gave the headman one of those little photos of ourselves we'd brought with us. Someone in England had suggested this. I had a hundred small prints made of the two of us standing outside the little monastery in Northumberland. The background of buildings, all grey lichen stone, contrasted so much with where we now were. This gift was a great success, and it was passed around with pride by the headman. Their lives and possessions are so simple that I could see we were leaving something behind that would reside in a special place for a long time. Such a contrast to our lives full of possessions. Were I to be given something similar, it would soon be lost amongst the clutter on my mantelpiece. The children followed us out of the village for a few hundred yards down the road, then stood, a gaggle of small bodies left watching the two amazing strangers recede. My main impression from the visit to Talahawa was the food. We were fed like turkeys being fattened for Christmas, with large helpings of everything. It was all delicious and very rich, and the plump Mrs. B hovered in hope of forcing more down. It was a relief for once not to be able to eat in the afternoon. After breakfast, I already felt stuffed, and the main meal was yet to come. Exercise was on hand, however. The young man who met us when we arrived came to take us to the Kapalavatu site. By the time we'd gone the two miles to the site, we'd heard all about the young man's hometown, his job in a photography shop, how he would like to visit our countries, about Nepal, about recent world news, and about his family. Most of all, we'd heard about his family name, over and again. It was Sakya, the same as the Buddha. He was my kinsman. Once there, the conversation changed. This endless monologue now mostly revolved around the site. He pointed out the excavated walls of the old town, 
the red brick foundations of entrance gates, and all the various excavated buildings. And this was King Sardama's palace, and here this is a stupa. And how much does it cost to fly from England to Delhi? And this, this is another stupa, and these bricks here are... No wonder, I thought, the Buddha left to take up the life of a wandering ascetic, if all his kinsmen were like this. There wasn't much to the site. It was never a big or an important place, just a minor kingdom in the forested lands beneath the foothills. But it seemed as if it could be a pleasant spot, given the chance. It was dotted with mature trees, with strange pterodactyl-like birds occasionally launching themselves from high in one to another. They followed long concave paths down, gliding, and then up into the next tree, while making strange cackling noises. I realised as we left that they must be grey hornbills. On our way back to Talahawa, I quietly suggested we return in the afternoon, but not to tell our guide. Achan Suchito In remembering his going forth, the Buddha referred to a protracted process of negotiating with the family. Reading between the lines the fact that his arranged marriage had only produced one child after thirteen years says quite a bit about where his interests really lay. Maybe, having produced an heir, he felt he had fulfilled the obligations to the household and kingdom and was free to follow his true inclination. However, the legend created later has it that Prince Siddhartha, having seen an old man, a sick man, a corpse and a holy man, decided that the household life could not avoid eventual grief for everyone concerned. Would his son's inheritance too be a transitory carnival, climaxing in old age, sickness and death? He resolved to seek another dharma. Gazing tenderly on his sleeping wife and child, Siddhartha set off secretly one night on his horse Kantaka. He rode as far as the border of the Sakyan country and then proceeded on foot in search of the deathless. Whatever the truth of the matter, I'm sure that the locals still remember to their shame that he left without breakfast. Mataji certainly wasn't letting us get away so easily. I still remember the layers of freshly fried parotta that we packed inside us to her satisfaction before we caught a bus back to Lumbini. Dear woman. After Nick had lined the family up and taken a photograph, I managed to give her a small Buddha image before we left. A way of thanking my own mother. She looked neither happy nor sad kneeling before me with hands in Anjali. At Lumbini I spent more time picking up the litter round the temple and trying to talk to Bunti about Dharma. I made some offerings to the Buddha in the Vihara's main shrine. It seemed more alive in there. And finally, the night before we left Lumbini, I dropped Sister Rojana's bones into Queen Mahamaya's tank. 
The stars bobbed in recognition on the surface of the dark water for a few moments, then returned to stillness. Under the tree again, the thoughts drifted around this matter of human relationships, now raw, now convivial, now aspiring, now irritating or generous or mean. You can never figure it out. I asked my mother to understand and know that I loved her. Why are people too busy to say these things? Behind the thoughts, a sad and questioning mood wafted up images of mothers and caring and loyalties, and sometimes behind the play, a measureless watching. I turned to that for some answer. said the Buddha. But you should know this, Ananda, the most marvellous quality of transcendent ones is that mindfully they know a thought when it arises. Mindfully they know it as it persists. And mindfully they know it as it passes away. Silently, before dawn, before the human realm got going, we went back on the long and open road. <laughs>